0: Hey, it's Andy. Every teen has their stuff they don't tell their parents about, not because they lack trust, but because they're trying to work it out on their own. As much as we wish we could be their go-to for everything, the truth is we can't always provide the objective guidance they need during these crucial years. That's where our partner, Bonfire Digital Wellness, comes in. Imagine your teen having a compassionate coach with years of experience as a high school counselor, checking in weekly to support your teen's social, emotional, and academic growth from fostering healthy habits to managing screen time, and much more. The best part? It's all 100% online. Visit Bonfire DW today and take advantage of a one-month free trial. That's bonfiredw.org slash talkingtoteens. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. here today with Chantel Pratt. We're talking about your brain and your teenager's brain. We're getting really specific about how every brain is different. Chantel is a professor at the University of Washington, and she's the author of the book, The Neuroscience of You, How Every Brain is Different and How to Understand Yours. She speaks internationally about the brain and neuroscience. She's featured in the documentary film, I Am Human. Her studies have been profiled in the media, ranging from Scientific American to Rolling Stone, Popular Mechanics, and NPR. She will be speaking with us today about her research on the unique differences between every single human brain. Uh, We talk a lot about brains on the podcast and teenage brains and brains in general. They're actually all different. And what Chantel's research shows is every brain is remarkably unique. Her team can actually bring people into a lab, put them in a brain scanner and tell who it is. It turns out that the differences between all of our brains are enormous. And when you understand what these differences are and how they work, you'll start to see why certain patterns maybe play out in your relationships with certain other people, your teenager, maybe your spouse. And when you understand why those things are happening, then you can simply change the situation. We'll get into the neuroscience of learning and we'll see why some teenagers are what Chantel refers to as carrot learners, while others are stick learners. All of that and more is coming up on the show today. Dr. Pratt, thank you so much for being here. What's really cool about your work is, you know, focusing on the the differences or the specifics about brains. That I think understanding this stuff is so helpful for understanding ourselves, but also other people in our family. And I think reading through your book really helped me to understand myself better, but also, you know, um, other people that are close to me. And so I think that'll be really cool to talk about. So talk to me a little bit about this. The book's called "The Neuroscience of You: How Every Brain Is Different and How to Understand Yours."
1: You know, I always tell people that anyone who has been awake and behaving, and particularly parents, especially if you have more than one child, but even if you're trying to figure out how your child works and how they're different from you, everybody understands intuitively that we we don't all work the same, right? I'm not wired that way. And it was this fact that got me into neuroscience. I started out pre-med and I had this aha moment when I learned about Phineas Gage, the railway worker who had an iron spike blown through his frontal lobe. And I think he probably got many, many people interested in the field of neuroscience because of the way his behavior changed after this accident. And it occurred to me that the brain is this organ that makes the individual themselves. If you change the brain you change the individual and yet the vast majority of science let alone the books on the shelf about how brains work takes this one size fits all approach like brains work yep. like this
0: yep exactly
1: and that research you know the science is based on a group average which is just a characterization of how brains work when you blur over the individuals. And so I was like, this isn't what I want to know. I don't want to know. It's kind of like taking a group of people and saying, the average individual in this room is five seven. And that might not actually explain, it might not describe any person in the room, let alone saying that like, this is the perfect way to be, right? Just like, this is the, the blurred data, so.
0: Well, yeah, it's normal. We want to be normal.
1: Exactly, right? I wanted to write a book that explained how different brains work within that varied space. And that's based on over 20. I can always tell how long I've been doing research, 25 years, because my daughter was 17 months old when I first scanned a brain. I know. (laughs) Yes. So, you know, for the last 25 years, I've been trying to figure out the relationship between the mind and the brain at the level of the individual.
0: And that was an interesting moment in the book, too, with the scan of your daughter's brain and realizing that it was kind of backwards uh, compared to all the other babies that you were, um, had been <laughs> scanning at the time.
1: That's so true. And it's a uh, talk about an um, awkward learning moment, right? I was so young and I was learning how to analyze data. And I was sure I did something wrong, like in the analysis, because I'm like, this isn't how brains work.
0: They put the mask on backwards is what's yeah, how did
1: Yeah. And then I was, you know, doing it over and over and I kept getting the same answer. And so I talked to my supervisor and she said, is there any chance that your daughter is left-handed? And what's cool is that as soon as I started paying attention, because if you're not a handedness researcher, kids start to display um, regular preference for hands, usually between around the age of two, like 20 months and above. And so as soon as I started looking, I was like, oh my gosh, she is left-handed, but it's so cool that her brain told me she was left-handed before her her body did, you know, her behavior did.
0: Well, first part of the book is really kind of talking about sort of how the brain is specializing and sort of breaking down um, different different parts of the brain to do different things, breaking it in half. But then it's also sort of increasingly sort of specializing different, you know, modules of clusters of neurons in there to sort of have different roles. Can you walk me through that a little bit? And you talk about how there's kind of pros and cons to this, I guess. You know, obviously our brains do that because it helped us somehow.
1: Totally. And I think that that's one of the things I really hope people will learn to appreciate. I think we don't talk about differences because there's a societal predisposition to say, this is the best way to be, this is a worse way to be, but there are so many interesting spaces in the brain where there are trade-offs. Like there are different brain designs where you have a cost and a benefit. And I think specialization is one of those things. Every vertebrate animal has two hemispheres that are largely processing the world independently and then sharing the outputs of these processes rapidly. So you perceive the world as a connected whole, but you've got these kind of brains brains working in parallel to solve different kinds of problems. And one of the interesting ways that people differ, a way that you have access to figuring out without scanning your brain is how different those two processors, those two hemispheres are.
0: Mm, yeah.
1: And there are many, many different theories about why we become like this, but handedness is a really good clue as to how lopsided or how different these two hemispheres of your brain are. So left-handed people in general tend to have more balanced or more similar kinds of processing happening in the two hemispheres. My daughter Jasmine is very, very strange in a lot of ways, which I love her for, but the fact that she, her brain is still lopsided. It's still very specialized, but actually in the reverse order from a typical right-handed person.
0: Well, because also if you're left-handed, you're sort of forced to still do things right-handed because so much things seem to be just set up that way in, in our culture and stuff like that. It's really hard to go full, full, full lefty because you have to exist in the world.
1: You're right. So if you're, well, you're left in this case, but if you have symmetrical skills in the two hemispheres and in the two hands, most people will lean right-handed because of the way the tools and the desks and the and the environment is set up.
0: If everything else was equal, right, would probably be easier just because the world is kind of set up that way in a lot of ways and so
1: Exactly. And fortunately, you know, we don't currently live in a society where we force people to use their right hand. But it is still the case that if you had a 50-50 chance, more people would would lean right-handed. And I think that that's important because a lot of people who identify as right-handed might have brains that look closer to left-handed people because of this, right? Because they've been pushed this way than somebody who's strongly right-handed, like couldn't open a door with their left hand. And, and those are the classically lopsided people. So when it comes to specialization, the more different your two hemispheres are from one another, the more sort of systematic the job assignment becomes. And we think this is in part because when people have very big differences in lopsidedness, it arises from structural differences. It arises from patterns of connectivity in the two brains. So the way I described this in the book, it's kind of like, if you have a team of individuals, and one has very strong visual spatial graphic design skills, and one is a very strong verbalizer is really good with choosing words or a very strong verbal communicator, you're gonna assign jobs differently to these people, right? Your team will function well, if you give the person with the specific skills the jobs that they're better at right
0: hey hey you're pretty good at this maybe you want to handle this one and
1: yeah it would be weird to give the verbal person a graphic design job if you had a better person on the team so that's how the brain that's how the brain works when you have a part of the brain that has a good computational specialty it winds up getting jobs that are more similar to one another and then it can become very very specialized for those jobs but in the brain that means that that team becomes worse and worse suited, or that part, that team member becomes worse and worse suited for other jobs. So I get very good at, you know, big picture or integrated things or visual spatial skills or verbal skills. That part of the brain then becomes less and less well suited for doing other things. So when you talk about the costs and the benefits, what you really see is that. There's a vulnerability that comes with specialization. So if I have one part of my brain that's excellent at verbal skills, it's fine-tuned, it's specialized. And that part becomes overwhelmed because there are more verbal jobs. You know, going back to the team member, let's say one is miserable at verbal skills and one is great at it. But we have a job now that requires only verbal things. And the person who's good at visual spatial skills is just picking their nose, right? But the person who's good at verbal is overwhelmed. Yeah, exactly. So in the brain, when it comes to specialization, that means you have fewer and fewer parts that are better and better at specific things. So if you have a hard job, or if you get an injury to that part of the brain, there's less redundancy built in. So there, there are costs and benefits to this idea of having specialized versus multi-purpose regions of the brain, hemispheres of the brain, so forth and so on. It's interesting to note that People differ a lot in this way. And this is something that's totally missing from our stories about how brains work in part because neuroscience, especially human neuroscience, has largely ignored the 10% of the population that identify as left-handers. For the most part, they're not included in research at all. So we don't know enough about how people like my daughter who didn't grow up in a lab, we don't know enough about how their brains work.
0: something I thought was really interesting because you know you're talking about the right and left handed and then also how that corresponds to the right and left sides of the brain and that you can start to get ideas about how people's brain works based on whether they're right-handed or left-handed. And, and you have a quiz in here kind of by thinking of it, not in terms of either right or left-handed, but on a continuum, whereas we're all sort of on this continuum of somewhere between, you know, fully right to fully left or kind of somewhere in the middle and kind of starting to like notice the nuances in there. Yeah, this is really interesting and in how we also process emotions. Something that I thought was really interesting was just when you were talking about the summarizing these findings on the different sides of the brain, because people talk about right brain versus left brain. But I love what you just kind of summarized here, which is that one of the key computational differences, according to Goldberg and Costa, is the left hemisphere takes more of a divide and conquer approach using expert modules to focus on tree level details where the right hemisphere is specialized for looking at the big picture on the forest level.
1: It's so cool because everybody understands that we're not all we don't all work the same. And you'll hear people say, like, I'm not wired that way, or you'll hear people say, I'm so left brained, right?
0: Yeah. Oh, totally. It's like
1: one of the only pieces of language we have in popular psychology to kind of talk about neural differences. It's just not quite right. We have this idea that a left brain person is analytical by nature and that this means that they're only using one half or that the left hemisphere is dominant and that a right brain person is like a creative thinker. And these ideas are loosely based on some really cool research by Michael Gazzaniga and Roger Sperry, et cetera, looking at people who had actually had the connection between hemispheres severed. You can then display information to each hemisphere independently and ask them to report something, to do something with it. And so what's fascinating to me is that one of the things gazaniga noticed when he was a graduate student is if you talk to a person, most people have speech controlled by the left hemisphere. Again, it's this divide and conquer specialized modules speaking is really fast. So if you ask a question of a person whose brain is severed down the middle, when they're talking to you, they're talking from their left hemisphere. But if you show something to their right hemisphere, they can point with their left hand or draw something with their left hand. So if you show different things to two hemispheres and asks the person what they saw, they're gonna tell you what they saw in the left hemisphere. But then if you give them something in their, a pencil to draw in their left hand, they're going to draw something else. When they draw something else, their left hemisphere can see what their body is behaving, is doing. And then he noticed that they started making up stories.
0: Oh, I see I'm drawing this picture. and um...
1: <laughs> Yeah. Like if you saw a sun and a um, sand timer, like an old timey sand timer, the patient says, I saw a sun, but they draw this timer. And then he says, Gazzaniga says, why did you draw a timer if you saw the sun? And the patient says, I was thinking of a sun dial. That's where the analytical, the idea of an analytical left hemisphere came from what Mike Gazzaniga called the interpreter. This tree focused part of the brain that's job is always to make inferences about causality and why you just did what you did, which is totally mind boggling. If you can think of a situation in which consciousness is divided in the brain. Like one hemisphere is not aware of what's motivating the other hemisphere. And so, yeah, so there's a, you know, there's a scientific basis to the left brain, right brain thing, but it's not quite, that's not the real way that people differ neurally. And I think for parents of teens, what might be really, really fascinating or for anybody, for myself as well, is that even in our intact brain, a large amount of what controls our behavior, are subconscious, you know, habits or reward systems, values about which action is going to be most rewarding, they're implicit or subconscious. I call this the horse and the rider in the brain, the two kinds of control systems. And the vast majority of what drives our behavior, we're not actually consciously aware of. It's the horse, you know, they move towards good things and away from bad things. And that kind of control system keeps most behaving animals alive on the planet perfectly happily. But yet the rider, our conscious storytelling, interpreting part of our brain, it tells us a story about why we're doing what we're doing, but it has limited access to the actual workings of the brain. And in in teens, one of the things that makes teenage years particularly turbulent for some people is that the horse develops faster than the rider. The reward system and the limbic system in the brain is fully up and functioning, sometimes a decade before that frontal lobe riding system knows how to steer, so to speak, you know? And so you might find yourself in a situation where you're discussing uh, why did you do what you did or an interpretation of the world with your teenager. And you might feel like they're telling you a lie, but they might just have a completely different understanding of the world based on the way their brain works. They're, they're left to interpret their data, their why with partial information, just like you are. And I think this is a, a a kind of a very nerdy thing, but my husband is also a neuroscientist. And so we have these discussions all the time about that. Most people might think is, are silly, but like, who knows, who knows who better? Like, do I have a better understanding of myself than he does It might seem totally obvious because I have access to the inner workings of my conscious awareness.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know what's really going on in there.
1: Yeah. I know how I feel, you know, when I behave this way. But my interpreter is telling myself a story about why I did what I did, or
0: do you just have access to yeah, I made of uh
1: yeah. So I'm more biased by that conscious awareness. he he observes my behavior, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, with
1: no distinction between what's implicitly driven and what I'm aware of, right? So, you know, so he just has a you might say he has a more unbiased story about why I do what I do, nonetheless, parents and, and teens, you know, have this, have this dichotomy as well. Like who knows, you know, parents have the privilege of having made it through the teenage years, (laughs) having survived them. So they have this kind of different historical understanding of the wise I remember a very salient moment when my daughter was 12 and there was a friend drama happening and my very relaxed very considerate child just came into the room and told me they were going to this person's house to have a conversation didn't ask me you know just I'm going, I remember just taking a break and saying like, well, how does this usually work? And, you know, we ask, and then she, I remember her looking at me and saying, you don't understand everything is changing. (laughs) And I thought, I do understand. (laughs) I understand on a much more mechanistic level than you do. (laughs) (laughs) Everything is changing.
0: It is indeed.
1: Oh boy. And this is the beginning. (laughs)
0: <laughs> that should be just the model of our podcast yeah, yes. everything is changing <laughs> you mentioned talking about uh rewards how some behaviors are rewarding to us and now that was something i thought was really fascinating in the book because you talk about dopamine and One thing you talk about is when kind of some unexpected reward happens, And we get this little boost of dopamine, but the same unexpected reward would affect different people differently. And some people might get a bigger boost of dopamine and say, wow, that was awesome. And some people may get a smaller person. And what was interesting to me is linking those ideas up to these concepts with introversion and extroversion, that more extroverted people are the ones who tend to get that bigger hit of dopamine from the unexpected rewards, which then starts to really help you to understand you know why uh, someone would be more extroverted because hey
1: exactly
0: unexpected rewards feel awesome to me then (laughs) i'm more motivated to go out and try to find some and do things i've never done before and meet people i've never met before and try stuff and you know explore it whereas if it's not that big of a reward for me in my brain then i'm kind of like well
1: yeah
0: yeah yeah maybe or or i could just kind of just chill read a book and yeah i don't know
1: Yeah, I thought that was fascinating as well. And and cool because some of the work I talk about was actually conducted by one of my friends in graduate school, who's a very smart individual, but a lot more introverted than I am. He describes himself as an introvert with bursts of extroversion. Uh But it's so, you know, we all are learning about ourselves while we're doing this research. And there are a few things to note about dopamine that are fascinating with respect to the individual differences. The first thing is that your brain does not respond to the world's objective goodness. It responds when things are better or worse than you expect them to be. When the outcomes of your actions are different than what your brain predicted. People might be surviving in war times or, you know, hungry or, you know, living in objectively terrible situations but be getting dopamine because they woke up they're still alive in this way your brain is always setting you your sort of implicit reward systems are always setting you up to need more than expected to feel good so if you have the opposite if you have rich you know if you have riches of rewards around you it's really hard to find happiness because you need something to be in the book. I talk about what would it be like to wake up as Beyonce? Because she always, you know, gives these amazing performances and like, how pleased would you have to be with your actions if you were Beyonce? Like, you know, I think if I woke up and did a Beyonce performance, my brain would probably die of dopamine overdose, you know, but, yeah, but if you are Beyonce, like that would be such a bummer <laughs> because <laughs> <you> have... <laughs> you have to like be better than normal Beyonce to like yeah get you're it. Like, eh,
0: yeah That was all right that show was pretty good I guess yeah but it
1: wasn't <laughs> maybe maybe it wasn't Baychella but it was okay
0: yeah 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 but when I sang that song three years ago at the Grammys man I hit that note just so yeah. well and <laughs> I'm never going to hit it that good again. Damn it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Beyonce's brain must have like such a struggle. So thinking about the fact that dopamine doesn't respond to the objective goodness, it responds to your predictions. And now when you come to introverts and extroverts, and when you think about parenting, what's really important, what I think many people don't understand is that dopamine, not only does it make you feel good and that motivates, like you were saying in an extrovert, I'm going to go out and do things to seek those dopamine rewards, dopamine makes you feel good and, and motivates behavior, but in the brain, it also motivates learning and rewiring. So when you have dopamine changes, the connections between the context that you're in and the action you took, right? So the purpose of it, it makes you feel good to drive a behavior, but in your brain that changes the likelihood that you'll do that thing again in the future. So an extrovert is like, Hmm, should I walk out the door? You know, here I am in my home The last time I walked out the door, I found an accidental surprise and it was freaking awesome. You know, I re my brain rewires. And so the chances that you walk out your door and whatever 16 steps it took you to find that reward, they all get increased a little bit.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: So it drives these, you know, the reward drives the learning and drives the behavior.
0: You quickly learn like, oh, hey, wow, that was good. <laughs> I'm going to do that again.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. But so we have two systems, though. And when things are not as good as expected, when you wake up and your Beyonce and you sing like excellent and not stellar or something like that, her brain would get a dopamine dip less good than expected, which reduces, there are these two pathways that are happening that reduces the connection between the place that you're in and the action that you took. So what's very interesting to me is that individuals with different genetic profiles, some people move through life largely motivated by avoiding those disappointments. Their brains are learning more from the time that things didn't work out as well as you expected. Those are what we call the stick learners.
0: Hey, we're here with Dr. Chantel Pratt talking about her book, The Neuroscience of You. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show.
1: The brain has its own value system. And I think that's the important thing to keep in mind is like, every brain is weighing the costs and benefits some brains are, are paying more attention to the costs and others are paying more attention to the benefits and when it comes to the espoused values like leaving your parent and saying like oh you know this might be really fun but i could hurt someone or you know or this could be whatever kind of explicit belief you might hold that's still that rider that frontal lobe rider system that's not fully online in a teenager right so it's messy I had a pretty significant knee injury. I came off of my horse, but my foot stayed in the stirrup. So it was very ugly. But part of my rehab was actually listening to music and walk and forcing myself to walk to the beat. At that point, it was an explicit instruction but it helped to get what your body does when you've got the wiring intact. And when you're not injured, your body moves in a very rhythmic, even way. But you can actually give external stimuli that create these rhythms and that get your brain back in sync, which is kind of cool. My own daughter, my reverse brained child is smart in a very non-traditional way. She's not fast. She is a deep, deliberate, slow thinker. She is a terrible standardized test taker. She has a lot of test anxiety, but also she just runs out of time because it's very hard for her to go with the first answer. Like she needs to consider, even if she knows the answer, she still needs to look at every other answer and think about a world in which that answer could be correct. Yeah. And it it's very salient to me because, you know, I was a single mom throughout all of graduate school and my postdoc life. My daughter was a sophomore in high school when I got my first real job. So I was also not very affluent. Not at all. Not affluent in any way, shape, or form. I just so happened to get my first tenure track job when she was in high school. And so I could afford one of these standardized test prep courses. The difference between her grade before and after this class was astronomical. One of the things that we do in the lab that I think is really cool is we listen into the electrical activity of the brain when our participants are doing nothing at all. We ask them to close their eyes for five minutes and we listen to the firing of their brains and we create what's called a spectrogram. And it just says, when you close your eyes and relax and mind wander, what percentage of your brain activity is happening at these different frequencies? But for different individuals, the proportion of the brain that's firing at these lower and higher frequencies varies. And it's so specific that it's like a fingerprint. I could talk to you for four hours about all of the information that's in that neural symphony, the fingerprint. We've used it to study natural language learning. We've used it to study learning programming languages. In our first study, we showed that we could predict more than 50% of the variability with how quickly someone would learn French based on this pattern of firing once five minutes of closing your eyes and doing nothing
0: want to hear the full interview sign up for a subscription today you get access to all the interviews i've conducted as well as new episodes weeks before the general public it's completely affordable and your subscription helps support the work we do here at talking to teens thanks for listening i'll see you next time